I saw a Senate hearing and one of the senators said, hey, we need some optimism. And I think I have optimism because I do think it's not just like, oh yeah, we could change or not change. It's like, we better change right now. That's Dr. Keith Fernandez, Privia Health's Chief Clinical Officer. Keith's here to talk about how his company amidst COVID-19 went from conducting 150 telehealth visits a day to nearly 8,000 a day and about his journey leading physicians through a digital transformation in a pandemic. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more information, check out our online healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. And follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Tom Robinson. I'm a partner in the health and life sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. And today I'm joined by Dr. Keith Fernandez, who's the Chief Clinical Officer of Privia Health. Keith, when I think of Privia, I think of it as a virtual medical group, like a super management services organization that helps to move physician groups along to value. Is that about right? It's about right. I think it's, it is a, a multi-state medical group, and each state has its own uh, particular ID, but we have a very common platform and services uh, organization that surround that. And evolving national culture, which I think is uh, pretty impressive. Which states are you in at the moment? So in Maryland, uh, Virginia, Washington, D.C., maybe a state someday, Georgia, Florida, Texas, in both Fort Worth and in Houston and uh, in Tennessee now. I saw the press release. You've just uh, just moved into Tennessee. What's, uh, what's the news there? It's great. We've got a nice medical group, Premier, uh, that joined us uh, in Tennessee and actually was able to participate in our first national meeting, and we're really happy to have them. Excellent. I, I see perhaps in less good news. They're in a state of emergency there and got over 40,000 cases. And according to Oliver Wyman's Pandemic Navigator, which is an online tool that navigates COVID-19 events in real time, at the time of this recording in late June of 2020, Tennessee can expect 1.3% of its total population to become infected with COVID-19, and perhaps even as high as 2%. That's 136,000 total cases, and up to 42,000 of those are confirmed cases. Is Privia doing anything to help bend the curve there? Well, we're doing everything that we can. Uh, it's a tough environment, uh, as you know. I think we're, we exist in many states that are having an explosion of uh, the uh, COVID illness. Florida, uh, I just came back from Florida, and don't take this that I'm causing it, but I was in Florida when that uh, started, and I came back to Houston, and boom, we're in a... <laughs> A big surge in Houston as well, Tennessee as well. Right now, our Virginia market is relatively quiet, steady, that is what they call it. But in all the markets, uh, we are treating, uh, actively treating uh, COVID patients, doing our very best uh, to treat our non-COVID patients. I think that's a, a significant conflict now with the fear, I think, that's in, in our communities about venturing out at all. And but we are actively seeing those patients and participating uh, both in, in uh, some of the treatment trials, as well as both research on testing and the active available testing through the FDA. You must have seen a complete drop off in 
in physical visit volumes and, and a rise in, in virtual care. Is that is that what you've been seeing? And are you starting to see it opening up now or are these second waves that we're seeing? Yeah, I, I would describe it as stuttering uh, just because of the second waves. I think we've seen some significant improvement in the markets that opened up earliest in, in uh, in-person visits. Sometimes at the peak of, of uh, the disaster, we were down uh, 20, 30, uh, 40% even. And some of our specialists might be down even into the 60s and 70% in in-person visits. For the specialists, difficult to do virtual type of care uh, in many of the specialties. So they were not able to rebound like our primary care doctors uh, rebounded. I think we, we had an average of in the hundreds virtual visits before COVID and uh, are now consistently above 7,000 virtual visits every day. And um, in some of the markets, we've uh, rebounded in, in in-person visits up until up to maybe as close as 70 or 80% of uh, pre-COVID pandemic. In some of the markets, we're just down 10% actually right now in uh, overall visits. And that's because of the combination of virtual and in-person actually been, the virtual visits have been very robustly worked by our group. Uh, and I think actually this is gonna be a part of that change. Part of it'll be COVID, part of it'll be patients actually going, wow, was that easy? You know, I get on the phone instead of driving 30 minutes and waiting an hour and driving 30 minutes back and, and that sort of thing. I think once, once you've had a successful virtual visit, it's unlikely that you'll go back easily to just in-person visits. According to Oliver Wyman's latest consumer survey, which we'll link to in the show notes for our listeners, more than a third of healthcare consumers who use things like retail clinics and telehealth actually like them better than a traditional doctor's office visit. With your complex, more complex patients and the extensivist type models that you apply, does that adjust to a digital world? Yeah, it's interesting to me. It's, it's not perfect, of course. In-person visits are critical, and this is something we have to worry about, that people are avoiding us so much. They're not even doing virtuals. They're just going, doctor, I'm staying away from my doctor right now. That's a real problem. But I, I will tell you, I think our sickest patients benefit maybe the most by virtual visits because they don't have to come to the doctor. They don't have to be exposed. They're the highest risk population for COVID. They um, need more access. And I think if you think of all the things that, that uh, healthcare needs to do better than it has done is provide uh, people with access to care. And that means tools like the virtual health platform, critically important. Got to have visits available too. There's some things where it requires a physical exam and sometimes just the emotional kind of interaction between a patient and a physician. We've got to expand our tools to be able to do more effective virtual visits with technology that allows us to actually examine more thoroughly. And then I think what I'd like to do in an an ideal world is is be able to tell when a patient needs to see a physician, either virtually or in person, but they don't know it. I'd like to ensure that we know enough about the patient, and that might include things like remote monitoring, you know, certainly existed before COVID, but is going to take off now like a rocket ship so that we can actually monitor those patients and tell them, hey, we need to see you now. In fact, we can maybe just dial into their monitor at home and say, hey, we're we're here and you're having some some issues. So big thing that we really have to do is ensure access to care for anybody who needs it. And I think we're making progress. I think this will accelerate it a little bit. And 
I'll, I'm sure we'll get to that, but I think it'll also accelerate the models of care as far as payment schemes, uh, which I think this, is a, this disaster has really made it very clear that what we're doing is not a very effective way to work or to get paid. I like what you're saying there sounds pretty exciting to me. This idea that we move from a building everything in healthcare around the visit with large gaps in between to this idea of continuously monitoring or perhaps even going further afield. We're enabling people with the data that they're receiving in order to start taking care of themselves and getting the right support and care that they need. You've already been shifting your operating model massively, probably way faster than you ever thought you would have to in COVID. What do you think the next changes are to get to that point where you move to this continuous interaction with your patients? Is that going to come quickly on the agenda? Well, it, it's definitely going to come quickly. And I think that part of a uh, significant part of my, of my time and my population health team's time and our, our performance team is looking at, at things that we can do around this future. Uh, we have engaged a, a group of physicians from all of our markets actually uh, working really hard on what does the future practice of medicine look like, what would be best for the patient first, and pretty good for the rest of us. And I think a lot of that work is uh, now going to happen. We even have practices that were significantly disrupted uh, that are volunteering to change the way they practice, meaning changing everything, going from a standard you know, visit in person to something where you can visit virtually in person. You can see your specialists. If you are in person, we can uh, move you to a consult room that has videos set up so that you can see a specialist right now not have to wait for an appointment for weeks and then go visit somewhere else, to be able to uh, have patients who are chronically ill be continuously monitored by that practice. If you're, you know, if you're waiting for patients to come see you, there are gaps that you're really not paying attention to the patient. If you can monitor them outside of you know, that office visit uh, continuously, you can pay much greater attention to a patient. And it's a different kind of job. It's, it's a little bit different than what we've done in the past it probably has a different overhead. And everybody thinks, I think, well, if you're doing all virtual, it's gonna cost you less. And I think, well, maybe, it may be cost you less. It may actually cost you more in some ways, right? The technology to be able to do this, a type of work uh, may be significantly different. The expertise may shift from one type of expertise to another type of expertise and being able to interpret data. And then I think one of the good things is being able to react to patients almost instantaneously when they have an issue so that it's not a matter of, you know, they're sick now and then they have to do this and then they got to wait and then they've got to do something else. And they've got all of that kind of stuff that we can actually respond to people as things happen to them. I also think, you know, it's a little bit of an opportunity for us to think about um, how physicians do their work. And this may be a huge structural change because we have moved into many more nurse practitioners and physician's assistants doing that frontline work that a physician used to do, but not nearly uh, to the magnitude that it needs to be done. Developing expertise in, uh, in nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, and actually even other levels of care provider, not necessarily at the top of, uh, of one of those MD or nurse practitioner licenses, is going to be, I think, critically important to how successful we are in this uh, new future. Oliver Wyman and Levongo did a webinar together last June that we'll link to for our listeners in the show notes. They mentioned that before the pandemic, 
CMS was seeing about 11,000 video visits a week. For Medicare members in April, they saw 1.3 million video visits a week. How have you been managing through the change, both for your own organization and then the physicians you work with? Again, tremendous change in such a short period of time. When I imagine they were under, you know, given the numbers you were just talking about, under incredible financial strain, how is that working out? Will, will they all survive? How did you manage through that change? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great question, and it's a complicated answer, but I'm going to try and make it simple. The first thing I heard in there was, did they all survive, and are they all going to survive, meeting the practices? And I think the answer is no. Uh, we've had a small number of practices uh, already come to the point where the, the, the owners of the practice decided to exit. Sometimes it's for you know, health type reasons, just looking down the road. If you have a chronic illness and you're a physician, do you wanna be continuously exposed to patients who might have COVID that could harm you as well as be, be harmed themselves? Some of them are living on a margin where you know, they can pay all their salaries and they take home a smaller and smaller amount of the dollar. And this tips practices like that over into a, a kind of failure mode. What we did is we, we had this virtual platform that was really underutilized. As soon as we saw the, the uh, disaster uh, coming, we began to pivot, not just telling the doctors to use the virtual platform, but actually getting them daily educational uh, uh, courses so that they could learn how to use this. Uh, uh, turning them on was very easy. That can be done in just uh, a minute or two. Training them on how to use virtual care. So you know, how do you get a little bit of a physical exam when you're doing, doing uh, virtual care? What are the things you can ask a patient to do? And a little bit of a surprise to me, there's all sorts of things that a patient can do to demonstrate what might be or might not be wrong with them. So we converted them to be able to move quickly into that virtual space. Also provided them information all about COVID and the danger to the practice, to the patients, to the employees, the CDC protocols we made available uh, to them so that they didn't have to go searching into the CDC site, which is, by the way, a very good site, but we put them right in line saying, if you want to know about this, you go right to this Privia website and tell you everything we know about testing right now. And we developed, uh, even I think preceding uh, the CDC's fully developed protocols, our own protocols for triage and communicated. Now, we have all of these practices everywhere. How do we get everybody on the same page about this stuff? And I think we were able to communicate both with our practices and with our patients about what's going on to tell them, look, before you come to the doctor, we'd like you to make contact with us to see what's going on with that practice so that they can check you out. So all of those standardized protocols. I'll move a little bit there. I think that was most of what I did. But a whole other team, including, by the way, some of our physician leaders in the markets, developed a whole financial uh, evaluation kit to be able to tell practices what can they do right now. They're going to virtual. Maybe they're losing some of their employees. Their volume is down. Their resources are way down. From applying for the small business loans uh, to, the, to the grants to what happens if you go to virtual, can you afford to lay somebody off or furlough somebody? What will that do to your financial picture? And we've actually continued that now out through some improvements here, but to allow practices to really just dial in. We have their data, as, 
as you know, since we control the EMR and billing uh, and th those sorts of things. So we have a lot of information that can give them a real quick look at what they, what they are doing and what they could do to do better. I'll just tell you another thing that we did was we engaged um, our uh, large group of our leadership physicians to help tell us what to do, what works, what doesn't work. In Privia, the model is that our doctors retain their private practice. We don't buy practices and they don't become labeled with a giant Privia. They usually have a small inset Privia, a little bit like uh, the Intel inside sticker on a computer. There's disadvantages to that, and we wanted to know, you know, should we continue that precise model, or are there variations that might bring us more success so that we don't really go out and market Privia to the general population? If you're a private practice, you may do some of that on your own, but we don't go out and do that kind of stuff. But the doctors actually are quite interested in us becoming a funnel uh, for patients who want to get the kind of care that we can deliver both virtually and in person. Our physicians told us, go, go out and find partners, right? Find people who want to collaborate to do this. And we are collaborating right now in mul multiple markets with payers, with some of the uh, insurance companies, to be able to go to companies and help them come back from COVID safely, uh, monitoring their patients, that kind of stuff. Our physicians told us, so this was to, what, to my point about the model, the financial model doesn't work too well. I think it's pretty clear that American healthcare is more expensive than it should be. So we can take for granted that that model hasn't been functional for the country. But really getting paid on a per-click basis, I see a patient, I get paid something, I see them more, I get paid something more. In some cases, that actually works pretty well. If you have a chronically ill patient and you're seeing them very frequently and keeping them out of the hospital, Perfect, right? But for many other things, it doesn't work. It makes the goal of a, of, a, of a visit with a doctor a financial transaction, one of the goals. And I think it's better, our future before COVID was that we wanted to be responsible for populations of patients and not worry about if we're paid for every time we see them, just worrying about how are they doing? Are they doing well? Are their outcomes good? And can we help at least control the costs of unnecessary uh, health care and waste in health care. It's, it's reassuring you're looking at it. I mean, I think just looking at the CMS stats, it's, it's very clear the power of, of reimbursement and the power of operating model change that COVID has created. You know, they were at 11,000 virtual visits in March and 1.3 million in one week <laughs> in April just for that small change. Yes, gigantic. And it, sometimes it takes something like this to get people to change. And I, I think many of us have thought the model of healthcare needs to change in many ways. We don't think, we don't want to remove that physician-patient relationship. This is something that is critically important. And now, in, in many cases, it may be a, a, a patient, nurse practitioner. And I will tell you, in my office, uh, my gastroenterology office, it was my MA. Uh, or perhaps the office LVN that was the real, the, the person who guaranteed care for everybody in the practice. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity for us to actually get going and change this, uh, this model of care and still protect that, that relationship with the patient. And do you think that there's, will there be acquisitions in Privia's future? I mean, your, your vision of continuous monitoring and this enablement of patients through data, I could imagine blood pressure cuffs and wireless scales and glucometers sent to everyone. I could imagine home pharmacy delivery and really close the 
the feedback loop on the cycle to help people get care. But that seems a challenging thing to build all on your own. It is. And I do think it's, you know, we look for partners. And I think um, our, I've been doing that before COVID and doing it after COVID. We want to partner with people who uh, can help us provide these services and who will gain a benefit from it. And so I think, you know, part of the point here is if I'm in a, a, a good, you know, solidly built risk contract and have a potential for saving a lot of money and sharing in that, I can certainly afford to do a lot more than if I'm getting paid a fee-for-service rate with a very precise uh, margin. By the same token, there are many partners out there, and we, we work with, with many of them, trying to get right now to commercial uh, capitation. If we can take great care of those patients, uh, we are working, in fact, on doing some uh, home monitoring in diabetes and hypertension and some continuous glucose monitoring in, in uh, diabetic patients with one of the, the uh, larger payers. And if we can do that, the savings that would be generated by that would be you know, more than covering the equipment. The equipment, you know, when you think about it, you say, well, it might cost $300 for a piece of uh, technology like this. If it saves $3,000, then the cost, in essence, the technology is of almost no value. No, I think it's being well proven out by several innovators in that exact space. And I Correct. agree with you on the, on the economic front. And Keith, one, one final question from us. If you had all the money and time, resources in the world, how would you make healthcare better? Oh, geez, it would, uh, it would be a job. But if I, if I had to pick just a few things, I would spend most of that money on delivering access to care for any person who needed it. I have this, um, this kind of mantra about when I look at uh, how different practices operate and ones that are called poor practices, they don't perform as well and they have a problem and all that. I can pretty much get a map out when I'm with the payer and say, well, don't tell me who the practices are, and I'll just tell you where they are. And I can point out on a map that any, any area affected significantly by social determinants of health has, oddly enough, doctors that don't perform as well. And when we have uh, investigated those doctors, going in to say, hey, you know, what could we do here to make this better, to, to reduce the cost of care, Truthfully, the quality of care that, the, that these practices have provided is pretty good yeah, under very difficult circumstances, I think. But how could we also control the cost of care and, and things like that? And providing those patients with access to care that they know they have, that doesn't break their bank, they can get anytime they need it, wherever they live, not you know, driving 40 miles into the city to get seen by a specialist. I think the impact of something like that would save money and would improve the care and outcomes for those patients. And I think eventually make those doctors happier. They would work in an environment where that when, they, when they need to do something with a patient, they're no longer inhibited by does that patient have a car to get to me, you know, enough money to pay the copay, and all of those kinds of things. Sounds, uh, sounds wonderful. Thank you, Keith, and uh, keep up the valiant work. It's much appreciated. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.